and welcome to A View from the Bench, a podcast about my experiences and perceptions in the courtroom dealing with the trial of major cases over a legal career spanning almost five decades. I'm your host, Albert McKegg, and today we will be talking about a major real estate fraud case. I've entitled this, Is He Wacky or Just Exercising His Rights? Before we get started, though, and because I still sit as a senior state district judge, I have to do a disclosure. Apologies for that, but it's necessary. In these episodes, I will not be giving a legal opinion on the law, but merely my impressions of how certain laws fit certain fact situations. Also, nothing said in this podcast is intended to show or predict how I will rule on either current or future cases. The Judicial Code of Ethics prohibits my commenting on cases pending in my court or criticizing the actions of other trial judges. Also, I no longer have any jurisdiction or authority over any of the cases discussed. With those disclosures out of the way, let's talk about a view from the bench. This case involves the fraudulent filing of a deed and a mortgage instrument, called a deed of trust, in the county deed records in an effort to basically steal a couple's home from them, or at least extort money from them in obtaining a release of the false claims. The home was in the country and set on a few acres of land, so the value of the place was several hundred thousand dollars. When the couple decided to sell and downsize, they found these fraudulent instruments through the title company, and it cost them several thousand dollars to get their title cleared so they could sell the land. Because of how the documents were recorded, it was a fairly easy investigation to identify who did it, the defendant. The defendant had a record as a small-time criminal, but had not graduated into felony-level crimes at this point. Misdemeanors are generally punishable by jail time and a fine, while felonies are punishable by prison time. In fraud and theft cases, the level of the offense depends on the value of the item in question. In this case, the value of the home and land was significant, so the level was a first-degree felony, punishable within a range of not less than five years nor more than 99 years or life in prison, along with a fine of up to $10,000. That's right up there near the top of the punishment ranges for criminal conduct in Texas. After the defendant was arrested and the grand jury indicted him on two counts of fraud, the case started out, usually enough, with the defendant showing up in court, claiming indigence and requesting the appointment of an attorney. Other than wearing some strange clothes and wearing a fez hat, which the bailiffs required him to remove, he appeared normal enough. By law, after examining the defendant, a judge is required to appoint a lawyer in those circumstances of indigence, and I did that. The appointed lawyer was a good one, too. Contrary to a lot of opinions, most attorneys on an appointment list are pretty good lawyers and use appointed cases to build their reputation, gain good trial experience, and to feed their private law practice with good-paying cases. It wasn't long before the attorney came to me and reported that his client appeared to be unable to adequately communicate with him or assist in the preparation of his defense, and that the attorney had a serious doubt about the defendant's mental competence to stand trial. In Texas and other states, federal and state laws require that a person be competent to stand trial for a criminal charge. Competency basically means understanding the nature of the court process, the charges and parties involved. The requirement is protected by the Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. 
After considering the matter, I ordered the defendant to be examined at county expense by a psychologist familiar with the mental and legal requirements for competency. The doctor found the defendant to not be competent to stand trial. I then ordered the defendant to be sent to Austin State Hospital, we call it ASH, for further examination and to determine whether his competency could be restored. The two examining doctors at ASH reported that they believed that competency could be restored, so I ordered the defendant held for that purpose. One of the things that came out in all of this preliminary work is that the defendant claimed membership in the Moorish National Sovereign Movement. As part of that, he refused to respond to his given name and argued that the whole court system was a fraud. Members of the Moorish sovereigns frequently come into conflict with with federal and state authorities over their refusal to obey laws and government regulations. They've also been known to retaliate against authorities through financial means, a process called paper terrorism, either by the filing of lawsuits or by the filing of bogus claims against a person's property. That did happen to me in that the defendant sued me, the prosecutor, his defense attorney, and a couple of others in federal district court. I didn't receive notice of the first lawsuit until the defendant was already in ash, and that lawsuit was soon dismissed as frivolous. But that is an example of paper terrorism. The lawsuit didn't really cause me any real concern, as I figured it was just a part of the defendant's incompetency. Moorish sovereigns adapt an interpretation of sovereign doctrine that African Americans, particularly of Moorish descent, constitute a class within American society with special rights and privileges that convey on them a sovereign immunity from federal and state authority. You should Google it sometimes. It'll make you just shake your head. As quoted by one of their leading advocates in instructing his acolytes, he said this, Your straw man is a non-living, non-breathing, fictitious corporate entity that has the same name as you, except in all capital letters. It's ultimately a trust that is brought into existence with your signature. Lawfully, you are the executor, beneficiary, administrator, and a stockholder of the United States Corporation. Keep in mind that such a position is really a lot of bunk and is totally wrong. Sovereign citizens claim to not be citizens of the United States, and they claim to owe no legal or tax obligations to the government of the United States. Moorish sovereign citizens are usually affiliated with the Moorish Science Temple of America and trace their roots to its founder, Noble Drew Ali, also known as Timothy Drew. This was, in fact, what the defendant did and how he acted. Eventually, he even legally changed his name to add Bay, that's B-E-Y, to the end of it, along with a couple of other changes. Since he wouldn't cooperate with using the name on the indictment, I finally just asked his mother what she called him, and when she told me, I told the defendant that's what I would call him. Sometimes you just have to match wits with those folks. He kind of hung his head and mostly responded to his name after that, although he wasn't happy about it. The entire competency issue took well over a year to get resolved. After his competency was restored at Ash, the defendant was returned to my court, and we proceeded to get ready to try his case. 
About that time, COVID hit and the entire court system shut down. That cost us another 18 months in delays. In that intervening time, the defendant filed yet another federal lawsuit on me, the new prosecutor on the case, the district clerk, and some folks not even associated with the case. The Texas Attorney General's Office took over the defense of that case in the federal courts in Houston. Each time the defendant came to court, he did his best to get into a confrontation with bailiffs and court staff, usually about what he was wearing, how he was to be addressed by name, or arguing with me that the laws were not applicable to him. He wanted to be tried by treaty law and maritime law. Well, that wasn't going to happen in state district court. He then decided that he would represent himself in the trial of the case. By this time, he had already gone through three defense attorneys due to either his lawsuits against them or his odd behaviors and lack of cooperation with them. I tried very hard to persuade him that representing himself was a bad idea, but he insisted on doing it that way. I did appoint a standby attorney to answer any questions he would have during the trial, but he did go to trial representing himself. When someone decides to represent themselves, I carefully go over all the requirements for their doing that, including that they would be bound by the same rules of law, same courtroom procedures, same rules of evidence, and the same laws otherwise that an attorney would be obligated to follow. This guy went through that process with me at least three times, and he continued to insist on representing himself. Under the Constitution, I had no choice but to let him, knowing that the trial would likely turn into a circus and an abuse on the jurors who were selected to hear the case. Meanwhile, the federal case against us in the justice system continued. I made a finding on the record that the lawsuit would not affect my handling of the case, and I'm in it. The lawsuit was of no real consequence because I felt it would eventually go away, and eventually it did. It was dismissed a few weeks after the trial. Because of the defendant's claims of being a Moorish sovereign citizen, I told him he could wear whatever clothing in court he felt was appropriate. On the first day, he showed up in front of the jury looking like an Aladdin cartoon character with pointed shoes, bloomer pants, a vest, a scarf, and a fez. Each day of the three-day trial, he showed up with more and more outlandish apparel, which the jury definitely took notice of. It's really hard to describe just how badly this guy did with his questioning of witnesses, his objections on points of law, and his overall demeanor in court. Near the end of the trial, he would literally just sit at the counsel table and shout out objections to virtually every question or statement made by the prosecutor or me. On top of that, Two witnesses the defendant called to testify on his behalf tried to get into a lengthy discussion and argument with me about their rights, the oath to testify that is required of people, my authority as a judge and whether my oath was still in effect, and the authority of the court. Well, I finally removed the jury so that these two could give me all the reasons they could come up with for not behaving according to the law and the procedure of court. Almost every time I tried to explain what we were going to do, the female would interrupt and start yelling. I was frankly getting ready to throw her in jail for contempt of court until the defendant begged them both to behave and calm down, which they finally did. As it turned out, 
Neither one of them was a fact witness and were not allowed to testify at the guilt-innocence phase of the trial anyway. They would be allowed to testify at the punishment phase, however, as to the character of the defendant. During the trial, I gave the defendant every chance to explain what rule or law he was referring to or objecting to, but he obviously had no clue what he was doing. He was just lashing out and being disruptive. Again, the jury definitely took notice of it. Frankly, I was watching the faces of some of the jurors, and many were openly incredulous of what they were seeing and hearing. I felt really bad for them about what they were going through, but it was the defendant's constitutional right to represent himself. At the beginning of a trial, a defendant is entitled to elect whether, on a jury finding of guilty, punishment would be done by the judge or the jury. The election must be filed in writing before the trial begins. The defendant did not make a jury election, and by default, sentencing came to me on a finding of guilty. To put a point to it, the jury took about 20 minutes, including a bathroom break, to find the defendant guilty on both charges. I ordered the defendant taken into custody, and we set about doing the punishment phase of the trial. Once all the evidence was in and the closing arguments were made, I told the defendant that I believed him to be a true danger to democracy and the laws of the United States and of the state of Texas. He was a danger to the citizens of the county due to his crimes, and he had made a mockery of the judicial system. He had abused his constitutional rights and had no remorse whatsoever for what he had done to the couple with the land, no remorse for his abuse of the system, and no remorse for his actions in court. I sentenced him to 35 years in prison on each charge with the sentences to run concurrently. I remanded him to the custody of the sheriff until he could be transported to prison. Under the law, when a defendant is sentenced to prison, they may earn time off through good conduct time. Prison authorities may award good conduct time to a prisoner who exhibits good behavior, diligence in carrying out prison work, and attempts at rehabilitation. If a prisoner engages in misconduct, prison authorities may also take away all or part of any good time credit they may have earned. It is also possible that the length of time for which the defendant will be imprisoned might be reduced by the award of parole. I suspect this particular defendant will have a really hard time conforming his conduct to the requirements of prison, but judges have no authority or control over either good time or parole, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens. This is just one of the kinds of cases a state district judge may hear because the district court is the highest level trial court in Texas. Almost all of the cases are really interesting, and in the famous words of Forrest Gump, they're like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Well, I'll see you next time right here. Until then, may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. 